All right, well, I'm just encouraged that it uh, doesn't look like anyone left. So that's, uh, that's good. We're, we're hungry for what the Bible has to say about Christian character. And yeah, I just want to reiterate something that I touched on briefly last time, and it's kind of an interwoven thread here, okay? And that's, <clears throat> that's the fact that the Bible really does emphasize good works and character. And listen, we, we are completely saved by God's grace through faith. Amen and amen. But we are saved on two good works. And I think what I've observed, maybe you have as well, but what I've observed a lot of times is there's actually a, and this, this, this happens from time to time, is when you overemphasize one truth, sometimes you corrupt other truths. And what I would just really, really admonish us is that the Bible is replete with an emphasis that as believers, we need to work hard to conform our character to Christ. Uh, I, and I just want to start out, I kind of want to make that point in a couple ways. Uh, go to Philippians 2. <clears throat> Philippians 2. Now, this was the example that we did not uh, go into with regard to Christ's example. But then later on in the chapter, uh, <clears throat> in verse 12 of Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the imperative, is that you work out that salvation. And then the very next verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I like meditating on those two verses because there's a back-to-back -back tandem there where it's our obligation to really seize this as an, important, as an important aspect of our Christian life and to pursue it, you know, full bore, but understanding that it's God who works in us, right? It, it goes back to what we were talking about with humility, right? Because what, uh, what, we, what we do is we pursue things 100%, acknowledging, though, that nothing good comes from us. He's the one who, as Philippians 2 says, he works both to will and to work. So he's the one who even gives us the desire to do that. And then he allows us the opportunity to do that. But I would just really emphasize that this is found throughout Scripture to be seeking to pursue good works and to conforming our character. In fact, um, just one more since it was on my mind, in Titus 3, uh, <coughs> He says, and so this is instructions that, that Paul's giving to Titus about what you need to teach all the churches. So this is going to be practical. What, what is it that, that Paul needs to teach us or, or Titus needs to teach us being reminded by Paul? And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. And then he goes on talking about speaking evil of no one, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he reminds them saying, you, we know that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, various <laughs> slaves to various passions and pleasures, etc. And the point that he's making, I think, is, is very simple, but a lot of times we miss this when we, when we really uh, emphasize things, wrongly perhaps, is that scripture really does highlight in so many different areas that we ought to be pursuing these things to the fullest extent. These should be the, the duties we delight in, if I can say it that way. And so one of the primary characteristics of the Christian life, which we are to both delight in and to pursue and be known as, is love. Okay, we talked about humility last time, and it works well to segue it this, this, in this manner because I think it is true that it's impossible to love unless you are humble. And why is that? 
Well, if, if humility is thinking about yourself rightly and understanding your relationship rightly to others, then you can love them. But have you ever been in a situation, you probably have been, where you found it difficult to love somebody? Why was it difficult to love them? Had they hurt you? Did they do something? Maybe they were not the kind of people that you like to associate with. It could be a variety of factors, but I can almost guarantee you that the reason you struggled to love them was because of your perceived relationship with them, whatever it was. Maybe it was they insulted you, they mistreated you, they had done something uh, evil or wicked. But if you understand your relationship rightly in between God and in between other men and women, you are able to love because of that. And so humility really is the bedrock or the foundation for, for love. Now, we, we went through Ephesians 4 already. And again, I don't think I need to really impress on you the importance of love. I think, again, I believe I'm among brothers who would agree with me about love being important. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about that. We, we briefly went into that when, uh, when Paul mentions humility as well, walking in love with one another. Uh, Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, one of the passages that I think is very fascinating is 1 Peter 4, and we'll probably come back to that a little bit when we talk about self-discipline, but in 1 Peter 4, Paul, or Peter rather, writes, the end of all things is at hand. So whatever, whatever Peter's going to say better be important, because if the end of all things is at hand, he's saying, it's the end of the world, it's coming, what's going to be really important here? Therefore, be self-controlled, that's weird, that he would say be self-controlled, we'll talk more about that in a, in, in a little bit, and then be sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That was 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. Now, we're, we're familiar even with Jesus' life and ministry, right? And in Matthew 22, the Jews come to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. And then he goes on and says, in the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. And very clearly, by Jesus' own confession, love is central. And, that make, and, and it makes sense just from a, from a uh, practical side of things because how we relate to God, we love him. He is to be our chief ambition, our chief desire, our chief love. And so our, our relationship with God is to, is to be above all other relationships. In fact, when Jesus is defining that, for people in multiple places, uh, you know, Matthew 8, Luke 14, Luke 9, <clears throat> he says, if anyone does not hate his father and mother and brother and sister and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so he sets the standard always so high saying, I must be the chief love. All other loves in your, in your life must be as if it's hatred. And I think that that's just really important to remind ourselves of day in, day out, because if there's ever anything, it can be, whether it's a human affection or a desire for an inanimate object, or, even if that, or an idea, a job, a thing, you know, money, all these things, if there's ever any desire or delight which is on the same level as God, you are in idolatry, and you're already failing. So you need to strive to make sure that your love for Christ is supreme and that governs everything then. Everything else falls under that. But not to be outdone, it, one of the reflections of that love is that we then love one another as well. And it's, it, it extends to unbelievers to be sure, but there's a special love within the brotherhood. There's a special love and a sacrifice within the believing community, which is to mark all disciples. In fact, Jesus himself said that in John's gospel. He said, by this, men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so when we think of this, <clears throat> it's really important to 
just recognize that love is so central to the gospel itself, but then also even our daily life as we, as we walk as believers uh, day in, day out. Now, to kind of introduce just uh, what I think is so crucial, uh, a sentiment, Revelation 2 is where we need to go. So Revelation 2, we're not going to be talking eschatology, at least not uh, from this passage, but Revelation is, is crucial here. In Revelation 2, we are given instruction to the church at Ephesus and follow along with, with the instructions or, or with, with what Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus. Now, if you know a little bit about Ephesus, Paul spent so much time with that church. He spent years with them. He wrote le- multiple letters to them. He invested Timothy, sending Timothy there. He spent so much time with this. By the time John's writing to the church at Ephesus, what do we see? To the church in Ephesus, write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So, If you are going to stop right there, this seems to be really good. He's basically telling them, I know your works. You're doing a good job with your works. And he says, I know your endurance. You've you've endured the trials that have come upon you, right? Uh, This is, you know, basically they get an A plus on their theology exam too because they're testing these false teachers. So, I mean... I say this a little tongue-in-cheek because, unfortunately, it works this way sometimes, but these are the premier seminary students. They, they, these are the ones who are doing great on their exam. They, they hear the podcasts, they read the blogs, they read the books, and they say, ah, this is what's wrong with that. This is what's wrong with that. They, they have, perhaps we could say, discernment. They have this, this discernment. They know truth from error. Is God going to be happy with them? Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay. So they don't love the way that they ought to. But they're getting so much right, especially in contrast to all these churches of Revelation. That's got to count for something. But, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he again commends them. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But that doesn't negate the fact that he promises them destruction. And this, uh, perhaps some of you have heard the name Alex Strzok. uh, Brother Strzok, he's he's, uh, just a... great influence on my life in many of these areas that we're talking about today. And one of the things that he, he wrote a little booklet on Revelation 2, and he entitled it, and I, I loved this phrase, and I never forgot it, and that, it made me so excited about the concept of love back when I was studying some of these things. And he entitled it, Love or Die. Love or Die. And I loved it, no pun intended, because it was one of those things where it really highlighted the emphasis or the non-negotiable-ness of that. It, it, in essence, it was highlighted as the essential aspect. All those other things, you could maybe pick and choose, you know, okay, this would be good, this would be good, whatever. But the thing you have to have, the thing which if you don't have, you will be destroyed, is love. Now, of course, I think the primary aspect of this is love for Christ, but... It goes deeper than that. The, the inseparability of love for Christ and love for each other is found throughout Scripture. And so I would just really emphasize that, you know, when we talk about something like love, <clears throat> I don't know, I, I hope 
this is not the case, but at the same time, knowing my own heart, I'm, I'm projecting my own sinful, sinful heart on you right now, is that I almost imagine that when you come to a conference like this, you know, you look at the session and you say, like, love? I don't want to talk about Disney. Like, lame. Like, let's talk about something else. Like, let's talk about what it means to be a man. I don't want to talk about this, you know, puffy love stuff. But the reality is that this is what it means to be a man. There is no greater thing we could talk about, in, in all honesty. And so when we go to 1 Corinthians 13, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time, I really want to categorize things the way that Paul categorizes them. And the way that he even introduces, Paul that is, the way Paul introduces the concept of love really just highlights for us just how indispensable it is. And again, I know there's so much discussion about love that exists. And some of it's better than others, I will grant that, but the majority of it just confuses us or makes us think that love is something, you know, for women or for kids. But love is to be found in every Christian's life. And I would just say this to you. Can, can we just be talk heart to heart, mano y mano, as it were? Men as leaders need to be the most loving to really set the standard for everybody else. People, as being the leaders in the families and in the churches, your, your, the people in the church are looking up to you, but also your kids are looking up to you, figuring out how to love. And so we need to do a good job of this. It, it really falls on our shoulders as men to set the pattern. All right, so how does Paul introduce this? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, he gives us kind of the setting here, the indispensability of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I have to stop right there and realize I made an oversight. I neglected to bring my cymbals. Because... I don't know, just, I don't even have symbols, but I should have brought them because, and the reason uh, I mentioned that is because I mentioned Alex Strzok. I listened to him preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 one time, and, you know, you're just following along. You're just like, if I speak in tongues of men, and then all of a sudden, while he's reading, he's like, and he like crushes them together. And you're just like, whoa, what happened? And I was just thinking to myself, you know, I should have done that for you. So I apologize for not serving you as well as I could have. Uh, that's that's my, my oversight. Please forgive me. So the point is, it's not, a, it's not a endearing sound. Okay, maybe for some of you strange people, you enjoy that sound, but most of us do not enjoy that sound. It is as far from melodious as possible. <clears throat> if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that sounds pretty good, but have not love. I am nothing. Wait a second, you're, you're really powerful if you have this prophetic ability and this, this faith which can move mountains. You are somebody. No, I'm nothing. I am nothing if I don't have love. If I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, and we would think that that would be the essence of love itself, to give up your body to be burned on behalf of somebody else. But if you have not love and do that, you gain nothing. And one of the things that is actually, um, I don't know, this is so different to, to our way of thinking, but I don't know, maybe at some point our church, the churches will be back to this point, but in the early church, there was actually a contingent of people who, uh, well, I guess you can kind of imagine this given the right scenario, but there was, there was a contingent of people within the Christian movement that, that embraced martyrdom, martyrdom simply for the fame of it. 
And you can kind of imagine by like certain, so I, I usually go to Israel every year with our seminary and we do an Israel trip um, to, to Jerusalem and Galilee and Gaul. And um, because of the, the many Palestinian-Israeli conflicts, you get kind of a feel for what drives certain groups and sects. And in some of the more, we'll say it this way, in some of the more radical um, villages of the Palestinians, um, usually they're influenced by Hamas and all that, um, they, would, they would put posters of like suicide bombers and stuff up and hail them as heroes, kind of like that, that whole idea. And you can, you can kind of imagine how in the early Christian movement, even though obviously the Christian movement is, is founded on Christ's sacrifice himself and, and Christian love, that all those good things can be corrupted through desires of fame. And, and there, was, there was a small contingent of people in the early church that would go through the martyrdom process in hopes of you know, attaining kind of that immortality among their, their group of peers, as it were. And so what Paul is probably doing is kind of keying on, in on, on some of that mindset is that, listen, just the very fact that you sacrifice doesn't mean that that's justifiable. That doesn't even mean that you're doing it out of love. You can go through what we often think of as the greatest sacrifice, giving your life for a cause, but you can do it for the wrong reasons. And if there's not love that's involved with that, you gain nothing. So love is very important. In fact, uh, one of the best, I'm not a math guy, I'm terrible at math, but uh, that's why I went into theology. But then I found out that there are actually uh, sections of scripture where you have to do math. <laughs> so uh, whatever, I had to improve. But the point is, one of my favorite mathematical equations is based on this passage uh, where, you know, infinity plus Zero is zero. And you're just like, what? And the reason I, I state it like that is because if you have an infinite amount of anything and you try to add whatever to it with zero love, you have no love, it cancels everything out. There's, there's nothing. And... That's Paul's point here is that it doesn't matter what you have to offer. You could be the greatest statesman in the history of the world. You could be the greatest athlete in the history of the world. You could be the greatest you know, Bible memorizer in the history of the world. But if you don't have love, you're worthless. Sobering words. So we better find out what love should look like in our lives. And Paul helps us with that in the next few verses. So... As Paul goes through love here, one of the things that we, we need to zero in on right away is that love is defined as an action, not as a feeling. And right away, we are at odds with Disney. Okay? This is, and I, you know, I don't think this is necessarily revolutionary to you, but, but it's something we need to remind ourselves constantly of because we are being influenced by the culture. It, the Christian life is one where you don't float in the river. You have to constantly be swimming against the stream, right? And so I take comfort in knowing that even, even the believers that, that Paul and Peter were dealing with, they constantly use the language of reminder. Did I not say these things to you when I was with you? Yet here I am writing them again. Peter says in 2 Peter, I'm, I'm writing by way of reminder. He uses that three times in the letter. And so he's constantly reminding them of the things that they know. And one of the things that you know, or you ought to know, and that we need to keep being reminded of, is that the world's definition of love and our definition of love is different. And that you just have to, you ha and don't take it for granted that your kids know that. They definitely don't know that. If, if your kids you know, have any friends outside of your family, they're going to be influenced with a regard of, what love would look like. And so we need to keep uh, pushing this, saying love is not just a feeling. It's not something that you fall in and out of. It's not something that uh, just you can't control. No, pretty much 
Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to find love, you just go to the exact opposite of what the world says, basically. You don't fall in and out of it. You can control it, and it is an action. That's the biblical definition of love. And I'm not saying that emotions aren't involved, but the, the biblical picture is that your emotions follow the action. The world's picture is that the actions follow the emotions. I mean, just think about it if, uh, you know, I'm assuming... How many, just by show of hands, how many are married? Okay, so a lot. How many of you want to be married? <laughs> okay, good. That's good. I, it's like, this, this is good. Let me, let, this, this will be applicable for everyone then, because those of you who are married and will, will take special application for this, and those of you who want to be married, you need to know this so that you can get married. Um, you know, there, there is a, there are plenty of times in the marriage relationship where it requires effort to love. And the reason for that is because you have two sinful beings in, in uh, close proximity. That's just life, okay? But the beauty in a God-honoring marriage is when you find two people that are sold out to understanding the biblical definition of love, where it, it, action uh, is going to precede emotion. It's going to be prioritized over emotion. And when people sell out to one another saying, it doesn't matter what circumstance I'm in, it doesn't matter what, uh, what feelings I have at the moment, I'm going to choose to love you, to lay down my life for you, and I'm going to serve you the way that Christ wants me to. I mean, a marriage that where both husband and wife do that is a glorious thing indeed. And of course, as we know from Ephesians 5, it's actually intended to parallel the relationship between Christ and the church. So it goes even as a deeper theological reality, and it's a beautiful thing. So when Paul defines love here, all of these are verbs. They're, they're just wrapped around this idea that love is action-oriented. And as we define this and walk through this, I think that there's some, some just some very helpful definitions here, just helping us see, okay, what does this actually look like? And I mentioned marriage. Marriage is an obvious application. I, I, I would hope that we're all encouraged at the end of this to say that our marriages and our future marriages need to be marked by this uh, sacrifice, this, this love being marked by self-sacrifice and action-oriented love. But it goes well beyond marriage. This goes to the, the people that Let's just be honest, you don't really like seeing them, you know? You, 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 you would be okay if, if, you know, when you went to church, you found out that they, they weren't there. And you said, ah, I didn't want to see them anyway, you know? You know, this, this applies to more than just your, your relationships you like. This, uh, this applies even more so to the relationships you don't. And in the words of Christ, do not even the Pharisees love those who love themselves, like they, the, the tax collectors and the Pharisees, they associate with and show love to another. But for us, we're to be marked by a love for our enemies. Different standard for the people of God. So the first thing that Paul says is that love is patience. Love is patient. This, this phrase here is often used alongside of suffering. Okay, so it's, it's often used in a context of suffering and it's used of God's patience in the days of Noah in 1 Peter 3.20. It's used of both servants in their pleas for forgiveness in Matthew 18, where you have the, the servants who owe great debts, and so they ask, uh, they ask for forgiveness, and, and they are described as being patient. Have patience with me. So this is referring to the ability of someone to be patient when inconvenienced or wronged or suffering, you know, I think Jesus is probably the premier example of this, right? And, and the, the phrase that we get in 1 Peter 2 is that he suffered and he was patient in the midst of his suffering. And as a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, 1 Peter 2, uh, 22 through 23. And in, in that example and in that paradigm, we are given a greater to the lesser argument. What I mean by that is we look at the greatest injustice, the greatest, I mean, just think about it. There's no question that Jesus did not deserve what he went through. And there are sometimes we go through things that we don't deserve, but maybe sometimes maybe we kind of deserve them. But the point is that if Jesus, who is 
God incarnate, sinless, did not deserve any suffering, yet he did that and he suffered in patience, bearing it so that he might save those who would trust in him. Well, that should be a motivation for us. What if somebody is mean to us? All right, time to get real. We're, we're men here. Let's talk about what it means to be a man. Does it mean that we were fighters? Maybe, in a context. But I'll tell you something that the Bible says. The Bible says that true men, godly men, are marked by patience. That if somebody unjustly accuses us, or if somebody affronts us, calls us nasty names, who cares? I mean, realistically, I mean, going back to humility, right? I mean, who, who are we? They, they probably could have gotten it a lot better. I mean, they probably could have done worse and still be accurate. I mean, we're the lowest of the low, right? 1 Corinthians 1 says God has saved the debased and the lows and the nothings. So that's who we are. Welcome to the club. <laughs> the lows and the nothings. And so when we go through suffering, when people mistreat us, when they despise us, we can be patient. We don't have to respond in arrogance and, and fight against that. There ought, we ought to be marked by patience. In fact, one of the hallmarks of male leadership in the church of eldership, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, is that an individual is not pugnacious, meaning they're, they're not fighters. They, they, don't, they aren't aroused when somebody calls them names or whatever, but there's they're marked by a patience. Yeah, if the time comes to fight, we fight. But not for our own selves, not for our own sake. We're not worth defending. And, you know, we, we bear up under suffering. We are patient in suffering. We we're able to withstand that. That's what it means to be loving, is to bear up in patience. But that's not, that's not it. Paul goes on, and he also says love is kind. And the kindness involved here is really kind of the, in one sense, the other perspective. In, in patience, we have the, the bearing up under suffering. It's kind of the, the, the passive nature of love where, you know, you're being assaulted and you're bearing it. You're bearing it. You're being patient. But kindness, on the other hand, is an active form of love where even in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of you know, the oppression, the suffering, you can turn around and repay evil or repay good for evil. You know, this is such a clear teaching of Jesus. Sometimes I think we just, we forget how obvious it is, but Jesus taught the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't, ex give, he doesn't give an exception clause there saying, unless they're really mean and nasty. Come on. Of course. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And this could be big things. It could be small things. You know, it could be, it could be in all these different scenarios. You should make it your aim as a Christian man to set a standard for being kind. Would, would somebody, let's say you die. Let's say we all die. A, a missile hits us and we're all dead. How would those who love us, who care about us, how would they define us? I'll say I'm, I'm convicted every time I think about that because when I, think, when I think to myself, would somebody say I was kind? Oh, I think sometimes, most of the time, they wouldn't. Would I be known as being a kind person? I mean, I think about the life of Jesus. He was known as kindness. He, he, he was so kind uh, in caring in, in all that he did. And this could, be, this could be things like, even in what we say, just really being appreciative of people, like, like our kids. Like, man, I, I, I fail so many times as a father, but, but I just, uh, you know, it's so easy to be critical of our kids a lot of times, right? Uh, it's just like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Don't you know that I can't watch my show or my sporting event or whatever because you're annoying me? Or why did you, you have to punch a hole through the wall? 
You know, you were driving your bicycle indoors. That's unacceptable. You know, it's like, what is going on here? If you have boys, you understand. This is just life. You know, that, those are the kinds of things that happen all the time. Um, yeah, you guys have stories as well as I do, what, what kids are capable of. Uh, but are we kind in how we talk to them? Do we tell them how, how much we appreciate them? These are the things we ought to be known for. You know, they're, one of my favorite stories, actually, of sp- kindness in the midst of an adverse relationship was actually a gentleman by the name of R.C. Chapman. And R.C. Chapman, a very, I mean, he, he, was, he was, according to Charles Spurgeon, who you may have heard of, Spurgeon, we, we know, Chapman a lot of times we don't, but Spurgeon said that Chapman was the saintliest man he ever knew. So... If Spurgeon is saying that you're the godliest man that he knew, you're probably in good company. But in a way to try to erase his name, Chapman burned all of his writings and all of his letters before he died. <laughs> it's like, which I think that's pretty cool. I'm like, cool, man. Good for you. It's like he didn't want to be remembered. But there's one biography about him, at least one. And one of the things that, that he did was there was a grocer in town that just hated him. And whenever... Uh, Chapman would go around evangelizing or, or preaching. This grocer like literally would spit in Chapman's face, like saliva galore in Chapman's face. And, uh, you know, arch enemies. And it's just so cool to, to read the story. Chapman, uh, he, he had a family member come in town and, and uh, Chapman was like running an orphanage. And so this guy was like amazing. He was running an orphanage and, and the family member's like, oh, sh- uh, I'd like to buy food for the orphanage. And Chapman's like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, my only condition is that you go to this grocery store here and buy it there. <coughs> She's like, okay, sure. And so he goes and he doesn't tell, didn't tell his family member or whatever. So the family member's buying like all these groceries to send to the orphanage. And the guy, you know, the storekeeper's excited. He's like, this is great business. I'm getting all, he's like, oh yeah, and where do you want me to ship the, these, you know? And uh, the guy's like, oh yeah, send them to Chapman's Orphanage or whatever. And the guy's like, wait, I think there's a mistake here. You don't understand. And the family member was like, no, Chapman specifically said it needed to be from you. Well, as is appropriate, the guy got saved. What a cool example of kindness in the midst of adversity. So Paul goes on, love is not only patient and kind, but love does not envy or boast. Now, I think we could import a lot of what we were talking about, even with humility, just with regard to there, there's something in the Christian life that mandates, we say, less of us, more of Christ. And love has its own aspect of that where we not only, we are not only okay with not having something, but we delight when somebody else does. And that's this whole idea of not being jealous and not boasting. In fact, uh, if you think about it this way, uh, being jealous or envious, it's basically, it's basically wanting what someone else has. I think you've all been there. I've certainly been there. And boasting is basically the reverse, is making someone else jealous of what you have because you're flaunting it. And so there's a, there's a connection there. And, you know, when, when you think about this, there are so many ways that, that we could apply this, but I guess one, one that is on my mind in particular with regard to our generations is as we continue to advance in technology, we have the influx of social media, and I, I just want to be real with you here, okay? because this is part of my, I don't know if it's my job, but I kind of make it my job, is to like really kind of try to keep up on studying you know, cultural trends and, and social media and all that. And one of the things that everybody acknowledges is that social media is built on the algorithms, like in other words, the, the, the algorithms that dictate what you see in social media are designed in a way to promote jealousy and envy or anger. 
in other words, negative emotions, the algorithms have figured out that if you are if you become dissatisfied or discontent or angry or jealous, then you're more likely to look at that picture a little longer, analyze it a little closer, look for some imperfection. Now, I remember just personally, I mean, I'll throw myself under the bus here again. I remember when I was in college and I just started, you know, using social media a lot more. I remember not being married and a lot of my friends would get married and I would see it on social media and I would I'd get jealous. I'd be like, why are they getting married? I would look for like, is there any reason I should rejoice at something went wrong for them or something, you know, like the, it's like such wickedness that rises in your heart and that can happen in so many different ways. It doesn't have to just happen on social media. It's just so easy to happen on social media, but in real life, it happens just the same way. You hear something good happen to, you know, somebody you don't care about in particular and you say, I wish, I feel bad that something good happened to them. So weird. We're so wicked that that way. Or perhaps the alternative is that we rejoice when something bad happens to people we don't like. But if you read Job, uh, as well as some of the Psalms that David wrote, that is actually evidence of a wicked heart when you rejoice that your enemy has suffered. David uses that as evidence for the fact that I know that I know I'm suffering unjustly because I have never rejoiced when bad things have befallen my enemy. Same thing with Job in uh, Job 31. He says, you know, I didn't rejoice when, when, bad, when sickness came to my enemy. And so there, there's this, this tangible reality where you can measure how your heart's doing. You can measure the love in your, in your life by how you're thinking about others and whether you're envious of them and you say, I... If I can't have that, I wish they didn't have that. Wicked. That's wicked. See, true love is, and this, if you want to think about maybe an easy way to encapsulate this whole idea of love, is that true love is selflessness. That's what it is. Because true love says that I'm glad you have something good, even though I am more deserving of it. Okay, you shouldn't think that way anyway, but let's say you think to yourself, okay, even though objectively I am more deserving of this, even though I have followed the Lord way more faithfully than you have, even though I've done all these things, I am genuinely pleased that you have the Lord's blessing while I continue to wallow in suffering. That's what the truly loving individual says. And the flip side is that the, the flip side to that is that the loving individual does not boast or brag about what he has, understanding that it all comes as a gift from the Lord. We can't, you know, as Paul, when Paul was chewing out the Corinthians, um, you know, in this part, it's more of a positive pre presentation, but elsewhere, he, he basically goes at them tooth and nail saying, why do you boast as if it hasn't been given to you? Everything we have has been given to us. It's all a gift. And so we can't boast or brag. You know, we say, praise the Lord, he's given. And I think that, by the way, just as a very, very practical application, if you don't already do this, really make it your aim in however you talk about yourself to always couch it in terms of the Lord's involvement. You know, the Lord, you know, and, and this comes even with testimonies, okay? Uh, I've been working with some of our young adults and how they share their testimonies because some of the testimonies just come across at how smart they are. Like, I was this year, this many years old, and I decided that I needed to follow Jesus because, you know, I thought that that was the right thing to do because I was this, and I did that, and I did this, and I did that, and I saved myself. It's like, no, that's not what happened. Um, so we need to train ourselves in how to talk theologically because, because the, the tongue and the heart are linked. And if you can train yourself to talk a certain way, that means you're thinking a certain way. And so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, mouth speaks. So, so train yourself to speak this way. The Lord has allowed this to happen. The Lord has done this. Lord willing, I would like to do this in the future. If the Lord wills, we will do this. 
uh, James 5, right? Uh, no, let no one say, we're going to go do this and this this. Say, if the Lord wills. Uh, the Lord graciously allowed this to happen. May the Lord cause this to happen. You know, uh, just couch your whole life in those terms, understanding that the Lord is involved. And it's not your doing. Uh, even if the good things do come and the Lord does pour his blessing on your life, which we pray for, and that's a good thing. It's, I don't want to give the impression that, that you know, the Christian life is only suffering and, and you know, that's, that's what we, we really need in our lives, although suffering is so good for us. I, I, can't, I can't minimize that. It's so good for us. But good things do come, and we can delight in that. But don't delight in saying, I deserve this, and don't delight in it saying, look at what I earned or look at what I was intelligently enough able to do, you know, no, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we constantly remind ourselves. So, so that's one of the most uh, just uh, opposite actions of love is to boast and brag as if you were the one who accomplished these things when you didn't. So we don't boast or, or brag in that aspect. But it goes on because it's not just boasting or bragging, but it's also just being arrogant and the idea of arrogance, I would just define it this way, is that boasting exalts yourself through word. Arrogance exalts yourself in thought. And this goes back to even our discussion on humility again, is, is that love, it's essential not just to speak rightly or to have an outward facade, but you want to be thinking rightly. Right? See, you and I, we can, we can interact and we can sharpen each other by the discussions we have. But I can't see your heart. Only you can see what goes on in there. And God. But out of all of us here, we can't, we can't say, hey, I've noticed how you've been thinking lately. I noticed what you think. Can't say that. But you need to be fighting that battle. You can't just justify saying, well... I got the outside under control. No, the inside is where the battle truly rages. And if I can just take a moment to take a slight detour, detour over here. Is it Interstate 80? Is that the one that goes by? Yeah. We're going to take an exit off Interstate 80 for just a moment. And I just want to admonish you that you have to make a priority to fight everything. Every battle ultimately must be fought on the inside. And the reason why I say that, and, you know, you put whatever sin you want in there. Uh, you could say pornography, you could say, uh, you know, anger issues, if you're blowing up at your spouse or your kids or whatever, um, all of those are outward manifestations of an inward reality. And you have to fight the battle, the, the way I describe it to people is that you want to fight the battle as close to the front lines as possible, so that if you get run over on the front lines, you can, you can, like, Put up the defenses and push back and get it back. But if you're fighting the battle on the outside, you're literally fighting on the last strand of defense. And if that falls, your life blows up. It's like the people who fall, we say it this way, fall into adultery. Nobody falls into adultery. Nobody just wakes up one day and says, I think, yeah, I'm just, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go commit adultery. That's not what they do. It's, it's a process of internal struggle, which they lose the battle on the inside, and then it comes out on the outside, but the battle has been lost for often weeks, months prior to that. And so we, we need to make it our aim to fight the battle on the inside, where we say, you know what, I'm not going to be content with, with sinful thoughts and desires which show up. I must confess them as sin where they lie, inside. And this is, this is so applicable in so many different areas, but pride is the one that's mentioned here, where the arrogance is, is how we think about ourselves. And, you know, it's going to be a lot easier for you not to boast if you can condition yourself how to think inside, thinking, I am a humble servant of the Lord who's been saved by his grace. Everything I have been given is given by his goodness and mercy and grace. I deserve none of it. Wait, you want me to boast? What, what, what do I have to boast about? I mean, I'm already thinking the right way, and it's, it's just a matter of, of continuing that. And so there's this element of thought process that we need to continue to process all of this on the inside. 
And, and I really do want to emphasize that because the battle rages on the inside. And you can, by the way, one advantage you can, you can do is actually open up to people about what's going on the inside. You don't have to fight it alone. You can say, hey, I've just been struggling with these thoughts. Could you pray for me? Yeah, of course. You know, and, and as Christians, we're not going to say, how dare you struggle with that? <laughs> I certainly don't have sin in my heart. You know, it's just like, no, come on. Welcome. We're, 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 I was going to say we're sinners anonymous, but we're not really anonymous. We're just sinner sinners. You know, it's just, that's, that's who we are. And so we, we long to, to fight that battle and to help each other, but just know that that's really, where, that's really where the ground is won or lost on the inside. And so really important to think through that. So love is not arrogant. Uh, also, love is not rude, or sometimes, like the New American Standard said, does not act unbecomingly. And what I love about this is that love isn't just interested in big picture items, like the self-sacrifice of, you know, I'm going to give you money or I'm going to, you know, uh, buy you something or I'm going to uh, do a project for you. Love is also interested in, I don't know, for lack of a better term, social decorum. Um, I guess I, I first realized this because growing up, I think this is just part of what it means to be a kid. I noticed we do have some kids around here. This is good. You guys like to slurp in your drinks? <laughs> I like to slurp in my drinks. Um, I'm still just a big kid. But I, uh, I remember growing up, I'd be like slurping like, it's like, oh, this is so great. I need to get all of it. And then my mom or my dad would be like, stop, please stop. And I'd be like, what's the big deal? And then I became an adult. I'm like, ah, I see what the big deal is. It's like, there's an annoying factor that goes into that. Um, and they would just say, they'd be like, that's rude. That's rude. And, and I'd be like, it is not. Or um, I, I, I'm also, I, I will say this. And um, I'm among, there are no ladies present, so I'm, I'm safe to, to admit this, is that I took great pride in my uh, belching ability as a child. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just one of those things where, you know, it's just like, this is a manly thing to do or whatever. And there's something to be said about that. But uh, I think, isn't the belching contest later? Is that the, okay, yeah, so <laughs> sign up for that. No. So, you know, again, it's like, okay, as you're a kid, you're like, okay, yeah, how do I make the loudest burp possible? And then you realize that there are some people that do not appreciate that in life, usually from the female uh, side of things, but uh, just people in general can kind of find that off-putting. And so is it a sin issue to burp? No, not really. But in fact, it could be argued that it's a natural uh, you know, got to expel the gas somehow. And so in, in one sense, that's not a big deal. But if we actually love people and they find that annoying or inconvenient, should we, should we not willingly give that up? The answer is yes. Of course we should. Because love is not rude. Love is even concerned with the little details about making sure that people are not offended. Now, again, I'm not saying that you'll love just will never offend people. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But in the areas where it is possible to make small sacrifices, even on the being rude scale, and that can apply to even the shirts that you wear, uh, the hats that you wear, the dinner mannerisms that you portray, all those can be a part of that. But love is, this shows really the true intent of love is that you value others enough to sacrifice those small things. Then Paul goes on and says, love does not insist on its own way, does not seek its own. Uh, maybe, maybe this is kind of the, the encapsulating attribute of love. Is That's why I said love is selflessness. That, that's the key ingredient here is that love basically sees others and says, it doesn't have to be my way. We can, we can do it your way. We can... We can we can gladly, you know, and, and I think this is one thing we're really trying to teach our kids. But admittedly, as adults, we're trying to learn it too. You know, is trying to teach our, our kids the, the principle that just because you want to do something doesn't mean that that's what should be done. Because what happens is you'll have child A and child B saying, 
I want to do this. Well, how do you reconcile them? And so we teach our kids and say, you know, it's actually a good thing to not insist on your own way, to not say it needs to be this, but we can do your way. We can do your game this time. We can do, that is the attitude we portray. And as Christians, that's how we need to be thinking as well. You know, I just think about, I'm looking at this, you know, nice carpet, which we have been instructed not to desecrate, which is good. And I remember uh, a story uh, about a church that I used to go to in California. It wasn't a very healthy church, but I remember there being a significant week-long battle about what color carpet to put down. I mean, it's big, big deal. You know, like people leaving the church, you know, like this is like, this got to be this way. No, it's got to be this way. And I just think to myself, where in the Bible is the chapter and verse about the uh, color of carpet that we, it's like, are we really going to come to blows over that? Are we really going to leave? I mean, please, just be, if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, be the first to say, we'll do it your way. It doesn't matter. Because the color of the carpet doesn't really matter. Right? And so the point being that there are lots of times that we can, we can gladly defer to others. We don't need to insist on our own way. Well, he goes on that it's not irritable or resentful. And the idea behind that is that uh, love being irritable, it's not, it's not easy to provoke you. So in other words, they can't just, people can't just push your buttons and you just explode at them. It's very similar to the patience idea. So love doesn't seek to retaliate. Um, the idea of love not being resentful, uh, this, the, the New American Standard says it does not take into account a wrong suffered. The, the idea behind that is that you don't tabulate what, what is wrong that other people have done with you. And this is so important in marriage. Uh, you know, <laughs> there, was a, there was a story, I'm sure multiple people have done this, but a story in my counseling class uh, that the professor shared about, he was counseling a, a couple in marriage counseling, and the wife had literally kept a notebook of all of the things that the husband had done wrong. Like a literal notebook. And she had like brought it to the counseling and saying, Look, A, B, C, you know, all the way down to Z, Z, Z. You know, it's just like, you know, there's so many things. Um, that is not love. Whether it's man or woman, you know, you do not keep an account of wrongs suffered. You don't, you don't keep a list of those wrong things. You, you, don't, you don't tabulate saying, well, you did this on the 3rd of February in 2022. Therefore, I am absolved of this supposed accusation of my wrongdoing, you know. You don't, you don't play games like that. You, you forgive and you, you intentionally put those things aside and you don't tabulate those wrongs. And yeah, relationships will be smothered to death where you're constantly trying to keep uh, those records of wrongdoings. I actually remember a, a really cool example. I think it was from um, Strzok again. He, he had mentioned... Was it Clara Barton? Did she do the Red Cross? I think it was Clara Barton. I can't remember. I think she either did the Red Cross. I think that's... that's. Anyway, uh, Clara Barton uh, was asked one time by an assistant, like, why are you associating with this person? Don't you remember when, when they said all these mean and nasty things against you in the newspaper or whatever? And Clara Barton responded by saying, um, I don't remember that. I intentionally remember forgetting that. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, maybe that's the way to do it. Um, notice notice what, uh, what he goes on, and we'll, we'll be quick with these last ones. This, you can tell that there's just so much depth to thinking about these, these issues. But uh, he goes on and says that uh, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And this is the key definition of love that we need to understand in our culture. Love is not... Love does not equate with affirmation or acceptance. And what I mean by that is, well, you know what I mean by that, is like with all of the cultural perversions out there saying, well, love is love no matter what it looks like or whatever. Love is built on truth. And love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. Rather, it stands for the truth. So a lot of times people are like, well, aren't you, you need to be more loving I say, well, one of the most loving things you can do is actually tell people the truth and stand on the truth. And that is part of Paul's definition, part of God's definition.
for what love is. And then he summarizes by saying, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that is basically one unit of thought where the idea would be that love bears all things, it, it perseveres, it, it never breaks. So in other words, love is, is always continuing, it's persevering in a special way. It believes and hopes. Now it doesn't, it, I think this is, it's wrong to say that a, a person is, is, is the object of our belief or hope, but our, our object of our belief, belief or hope is ultimately in God, in the one who causes all things to work together for good. And so our ultimate belief and our ultimate expectation and hope is in God who causes all things to work out in accordance with his plan and for ultimate good. And so we work that way. We, we believe and we hope in him. And through all that, that gives us the motivation to endure. And love is hard. Like, don't, don't ever let someone tell you love is easy. Love is hard. It's difficult. But the reason it's difficult, and maybe putting it like this, the reason it's, it's difficult is because it's so important. And oftentimes, the things that are most important are the things that are most difficult. Love is one of the, if not the, essential hallmarks of the believer. But it's not... It's not Disney's version of love, you know, just like, you know, you fall in and out, all those different things. But this, this takes hard work intentionality. And I would just implore you as I implore myself, let's ask God to help us to be loving men. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to be loving it's something that we ought to think more about. But we get distracted by other things. But the simplicity of it is that this is, this is the non-negotiable. This is what we must strive for in our lives. That we would be loving men. So Lord, may our family see it. May you help us. May our church benefit from it for your honor and glory. Amen.